Are you selling a little or a lot? Either way, Shopify helps you do your thing. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. It helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. In fact, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And now you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Most of the business owners who listen to No Bullshit Leadership want to go large. What's so cool about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, it gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash leadership or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash leadership now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash leadership. Welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. In a world where knowledge has become a commodity, this podcast is designed to give you something more. Access to the experience of a successful CEO who has already walked the path. So join your host, Martin Moore, who will unlock and bring to life your own leadership experiences and accelerate your journey to leadership excellence. Hey there, and welcome to episode 218 of the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. This week's episode is working from home working, getting back to the office. The dust is well and truly starting to settle on the COVID pandemic, and life is back to relative normality. So for example, I was just able to travel to and enter Australia with no proof of vaccination and no recent COVID test. While I was there, I was able to seamlessly cross state borders without any checks or restrictions. Contrast this to the situation just over 12 months ago. I had to get permission from the government for me and my US citizen wife, Kathy to leave Australia to travel to the USA. Permission, which I might add, was initially denied. I also had to show my electronic vaccination card to be granted access to the few public places that were actually open. Now, one of the lingering COVID hangovers that hasn't yet been resolved is the question of hybrid work. Many companies are increasingly keen to see their people return to the office, but many of their employees increasingly don't want to do so. And decisions still have to be made by many companies as to how they're going to handle this transition. Now, the timing of this episode isn't random. I've seen a huge increase in the number of studies, articles and blogs that are focusing on the return to office issue. So much so that it feels as though we're approaching a critical inflection point. How is the landscape developing? And what does it mean for leaders who have to manage not just their own expectations, but the expectations of the people in their teams as well? Today, I'm going to look at a few articles that quote the latest research, studies and opinions. So grab the popcorn and settle in. We're going to cover a lot of ground. I'll start with a look at what companies are quietly planning. I'll then take a look at a study on what seems to be changing with respect to post-pandemic leadership. I'll talk about how your executive leaders are increasingly likely to view the world. And I'll finish with a look at a great article that offers some suggestions for making work from home and hybrid work models actually work. So let's get into it. 
we're starting to see a huge divergence in how different companies are approaching the return to office issue. Some companies have really embraced work from home. So companies like Airbnb and the Aussie tech unicorn Atlassian are saying that employees never have to go into the office again. But it's not just the stodgy old industrial firms that are looking for a return to more in-person attendance. Future-thinking luminaries like Elon Musk are now stressing the value of in-person collaboration. Now, a recent survey by US company Resume Builder asked a bunch of senior leaders what policies they'd be looking to implement in the coming year with respect to work-from-home arrangements. The survey found that 9 out of 10 companies will require some sort of return to the office by 2023. But to sweeten the pot, almost all of these are offering employee incentives to return. And the benefits fill a really broad range, including commuter benefits, uh, curated meals while they're on site, pay rises, pet-friendly offices, more casual dress codes. Even right now, two-thirds of companies currently require employees to return to the office in some way, shape or form. Now, here's something really interesting. Of the companies surveyed, only one in five said that they will sack workers who refuse to return. Now, believe it or not, I actually find this number really low. What it effectively means is that when an employer says, you have to do this because it's important to the company, the employee just says, yeah, nah, I think I'll just ignore that and do what I want to do instead. What culture will that breed? When some people follow the rules that the company lays down and others choose to ignore them. That's going to require some really strong leadership. On one hand, you have the struggle to reassert messages of culture, expectations and what the company values. And on the other, you have potential long-term implications about talent retention and employee value proposition. But in my head, if you're going to make the rule, then you need to enforce it. If you don't intend to enforce it, don't make it in the first place. Now, in terms of how much and how often employees will have to show up, the research found that most commonly, in-person attendance will likely be required three or four days per week. So for the vast majority, it'll never go back to full-time attendance. And only one company in 20 would insist upon that full-time return. On the other hand, only about 10% of companies say that they'd require attendance on two days or less. So you're probably looking at the three to four day in-person work week. I also think it's worth recognising that the drive to have employees back in the office isn't just a matter of leadership insecurity. 96% of the leaders surveyed genuinely see the benefit of face-to-face work through things like improved communication, greater creativity, uh, increased productivity and improved culture. So what does that mean? Well, for leaders, you have a chance to shape the way this return to work will happen. And it definitely needs to happen. It's just a matter of how and how well. Knowing what will make a difference to performance and not being overly focused on process and policy, but rather the desired outcomes, will be the real determinant of success or failure. Now, you probably know by now that I'm a firm believer in the fundamentals of good leadership. Great leadership is great leadership. And if you're a great leader in 2019, well, it's very unlikely that that's going to change in 2023. Although situationally at different times, in different industries, at different leadership levels, 
and in different economic cycles, certain leadership fundamentals can become more or less important. So I came across a Wall Street Journal article which cited a recent Corn Ferry study. The article was titled, What Good Leadership Looks Like Now Versus Pre-COVID. In case you aren't familiar with Corn Ferry, it's one of the five global executive search firms. These are affectionately known as Shrek firms, which is an acronym for the five companies' initials. Spencer Stewart, Hydric and Struggles, Russell Reynolds, Egon Zender, and Corn Ferry with a K, of course. They have access to a lot of senior executives in really significant companies. They place them in the top jobs globally, and they sell other executives to them. This really is the rarefied air of the job placement market, right? Anyhow, Corn Ferry conducted a study based on the Drucker Institute's rankings for overall effectiveness. They compared the top leadership traits and competencies of the companies that were listed in the Wall Street Journal's Management Top 250 list. Now, traits are the personality characteristics central to who a person is, whereas competencies are observable skills that either come naturally or can be attained and honed with experience. These data come from thousands of execs across over 850 US companies, so it's pretty widespread and credible. Now, comparison between 2020 and 2022 didn't change much when it came to basic leadership traits. In 2020, the five dominant traits were tolerance for ambiguity, adaptability, risk-taking, trust, and openness to differences. And the only one that changed in 2022 was that openness to differences was replaced by curiosity. In contrast to this, the critical leadership competencies shifted much more through the course of the pandemic. So in 2020, the critical competencies were builds effective teams, drives engagement, communicates effectively, collaborates, and cultivates innovation. The only one of these five competencies that survived in 2022 was collaborates. The other four, all new entrants, were global perspective, manager's ambiguity, interpersonal savvy, and instills trust. Now, it's not too hard to see why this might be the case. Supply chains have been in disarray for some time, and the increases in complexity and ambiguity have pushed us to a completely different place. But think about the competencies in relation to the personal interactions. The 2020 competencies of engagement, communication, and team building have been replaced by interpersonal savvy and trust. Now, do these require new competencies to be developed? Or is it simply a sign of the increasing degree of difficulty of the leadership task itself? It used to be much easier to get away with not placing a dedicated focus on the individual relationships that underpinned a team. But now, it feels harder to be successful as a leader if you don't have that. Interpersonal savvy and trust are much more difficult to develop remotely and with a limited number of interactions to form the relationships. The quality of these interactions also suffers from remote communications. How many of your team do you think are looking at something on their screen which is completely unrelated to a conversation you're having in a Zoom meeting? So for all the people who want to stay home and just say, I can work just as effectively from home and I'm more productive to boot. Well, they may be right to some extent. Discrete tasks are very doable remotely. 
but anything that requires collaboration and interaction is markedly degraded. And you'll have a much harder time developing the trust and building the culture that high-performing companies are built upon. What are the people at the top of these organisations thinking? Look, I was just about to record this episode and something turned up in my inbox that caught my eye. Another Wall Street Journal article which was entitled Your Boss Still Thinks You're Faking It When You're Working From Home. (laughs) So how could I let this one pass, right? Recent research found that office occupancy rates in the US are still below 50% and many executives are suffering from what we call productivity paranoia. 85% of leaders still think it's harder to know if employees are being productive when they work from home. And this isn't just founded on doubts about effort and productivity. It's also fueled by the recently observed trends that have dominated the mainstream media, like the great resignation and quiet quitting. Now, there's definitely something to the concept that many people are less productive when they aren't in the office. And the jury's still out as to whether or not this productivity gap is bridged by the time savings of not having to physically prepare for and commute to the office. Over time, I guess we'll be able to see the measurable trends in productivity and performance. And look, I don't really have a view on the productivity issue. My concerns are much more around culture, trust, interpersonal relationships, sense of purpose and belonging, and so forth. All of which are critical contributors to team performance. But just to have a look at productivity, let's reach back almost 100 years to research findings from another Aussie in the USA many years before me. Australian psychologist Elton Mayo conducted a study and came out with a critical finding that was later coined the Hawthorne Effect. Now, This was named after Hawthorne Works, the Western Electric plant near Chicago where the study was carried out. It was designed to measure the impact of external changes in the environment to worker productivity in the plant. When trying to determine the effect of different levels of lighting intensity on productivity, they found something really interesting. When lighting levels were increased, productivity increased. When lighting levels were decreased, productivity increased. In fact, no matter what they did, productivity increased. What they found was the increase was not attributable to the external changes. It was solely attributable to the fact that the individuals were being observed by researchers with lab coats and clipboards. So, as long as the workers were under the scrutiny of the research, productivity increased. And when the study was completed, productivity dropped again, quickly. So the scepticism of many leaders about productivity may be quite well-founded. Okay, are there any answers in all of this? Well, I want to finish by taking a look at a Fast Company article written by Dr. Thomas Shomoro Pramusic with the snappy title, How Hybrid Work Can Backfire If You Don't Have Strategies for These Four Obstacles. He kicks the article off with the statement, Competent and motivated people should be allowed to decide how and where they work. Okay, this is probably true, but just ask yourself one question. As you look around your team and organisation, how many people would you classify as competent and motivated? Well, it's certainly not everyone, even in smaller companies. Your level of personal optimism will probably determine what percentage fall into this category for you. But it's clear that not everyone should be able to decide for themselves, so we need some principles and some guidelines. 
Now, the author goes on to say that activity is less important than productivity. Hallelujah. Absolutely true. The more you base rewards on results, the less room there is for the upwards managers in your organization to thrive on politics and bullshit. So in a strange way, work from home has democratized this a little bit. But there are still some obvious issues of performative work. So for example, people attending a surplus of Zoom meetings or uh, scheduling emails to be sent out at all hours of day and night. Post-pandemic, companies have been forced to move to a new model. They now face increasing employee demands and they're struggling with morale, retention and brand reputation. So let's have a look at the author's four obstacles to successfully implementing the new hybrid model. The first one cited is unfairness. Now, with some people able and willing to spend more time in the office than others, it may lead to a lack of fairness. For example, if you give managers too much flexibility, different managers may implement different rules. But if you put blanket rules in place, they'll suit some people more than others. Well, look, this has always been the case. Life's not fair, so get on with it. But it does raise an interesting question. How do you craft a policy? See, one size fits all simply won't work. But if you leave it to your leaders to decide, you're relying on their judgment. And this is going to introduce high levels of variability. So this is a tricky issue for sure. The second obstacle is the issue of unspoken rules. Now, the policy may say one thing, but conduct and rewards may support another. This is the concept of allowing X, but rewarding Y. The author says, The point of hybrid work should be to improve work-life balance, not widen the gap between those who have responsibilities outside of work and those who don't. Okay, you probably know where I'm going to go with this one. (laughs) Leadership isn't about creating support groups to provide equal outcomes regardless of individual circumstances. Unless, of course, you are completely disinterested in results. Individual differentiation is key to high performance. And this is just another manifestation of that principle. The third obstacle cited is presenteeism and proximity bias. Now, turning up physically gives you an advantage. And once again, this has always been the case. We've learned that it's way harder to connect via technology. In-person dealings are infinitely more productive for a whole range of reasons. So look, we all need to make choices. Whether we're driven, ambitious leaders, or just people who want to go in and earn a paycheck to support our families. But the individual choices we make always have had and always will have their consequences. Now, no one questioned this pre-pandemic. Some personal choices make it harder to compete in a career situation. And in my mind, that's okay. So the person who's extremely driven and dedicated to their career probably should win that next promotion. Of course, as long as it's merit-based and not just a function of physical commitment to the job. So look, call me harsh, but I don't see any pressing need to try to counterbalance people's choices in an attempt to equalise everyone's career outcomes. I've had young people say to me, oh, Marty, I'll never work as hard as you. (laughs) Okay, your choice. No worries, Gen Z. Just don't expect the same outcomes. Don't expect the success. The world owes you nothing. If you want it, get out there and earn it. Finally, the fourth obstacle in return to work is cultural dilution. Yeah, you know, this is my biggest worry too. It's hard enough to establish a consistent culture of performance 
without adding the complexity of physical remoteness. You've probably heard me say there's no single culture that defines most organisations. There are many cultures that reside in different teams and locations. And these are largely based on the standards and climate that the leader sets. So having people physically dislocated makes it much harder to establish and foster a constructive high-performance culture. But for me, the antidote is to have more frequent, high-quality interactions with people to reinforce the cultural norms. Working remotely is in direct conflict to this objective. And there's one statement where I'm going to radically depart from the author of the article who says that forcing people to come back into the office, conveying a sense of distrust, or not attending to employees' demands probably poses a higher risk of damaging the culture. Well, I guess we'll see how that works out over time, won't we? But I want to give Dr. Chamorro Chamusic the final word. He concludes his article by saying, Ultimately, it's up to leaders, managers and employees to create the conditions that enable a strong culture, high levels of morale and well-being, and performance. Acknowledging that things are hard and having the humility to try things out evaluate their impact and correct as needed, is probably as good as it gets. Well said. But in my view, we need to put organisational performance at the centre, because without this, everything else falls apart. The trick is to work out how much the other factors play into that performance. Building a strong culture is critical, and may mean making some tough choices about what you support, tolerate and reward. Every company's different, but my instinct is to not let your current employees hold you to ransom. A culture where people simply do as they please was never conducive to performance in the past, and I'd be very surprised if it's the secret to unlocking performance in our post-COVID future. All right, so that brings us to the end of episode 218. Thanks so much for joining us, and remember, at Your CEO Mentor, our purpose is to improve the quality of leaders globally. So please share this episode with another leader who you know is going to benefit from it. I look forward to next week's episode, Intelligence is Overrated. Until then, I know you'll take every opportunity you can to be a no-bullshit leader. <laughs>